What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. The following podcast contains explicit language. I, I always live my life to the very fullest. And yes, I, you do. The thing is, I need a little bit more balance in work life. I may be open to a relationship this year. I wasn't before. Breaking but, news? Don but, Lemon is open to a relationship? I, yeah, well, yeah. This is Represent, and I'm Aisha Harris. Hello, everyone, and Happy New Year. May your 2017 be filled with the same levels of wild abandon and zero Fs given as Don Lemon demonstrated on New Year's Eve earlier this week. While everyone was staring down my beloved Mariah for her disastrous performance due to technical difficulties, bless her heart, Don Lemon had a little too much to drink while on the job and got really, really real, as you can see from that clip we just played. So... It is our first episode of 2017, and our last episode was really, really fun. Verilyn, my producer who's right here, uh, ooh, can ooh, ooh. vouch for that. <laughs> you, how many times have you listened to that episode? Now? I've, I've listened to it three times. Nice. <laughs> and, like, that's not normal. Like, normally <laughs> I edit it and then, I, you know. Normally you don't want to hear my voice that often. I mean, I listen to it during the edit. I so. know. Yes. <laughs> well, that was really fun. Again, want to shout out Tiffany and Antonia and Alex for coming on to chat about the, the year that was 2016 we can now say it is way behind us (sighs) hopefully hopefully (laughs) (laughs) so we just wanted to acknowledge that you know we talked about uh, a lot of things we're looking forward to in that last episode and one of the things we mentioned or that i mentioned was uh, looking forward to black panther and it i realize now we have a correction to make that black panther does not actually come out in 2017 it comes out in 2018 so, so we have the whole year <laughs> so now it means i really have nothing to look forward to in 2017 um but yes yeah, so as uh, it was pointed out by some folks on Twitter, and as I realized myself, it is not coming out for another year plus, but I'm still looking forward to it. And another glaring omission that we got called out for, which I love. So please always feel free to email us at representslate.com yes, with do. your comments and feedback because, you know, we didn't mention Luke Cage the whole time. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of stuff we didn't mention, but Luke Cage does seem like a glaring oversight. Now, This is where I confess that part of the reason why it wasn't mentioned was my fault. And it's because I have not watched Luke Cage yet. Mm. We got to get you. I know. Because I really, I mean, I watched the whole thing. I really, so here's the thing is that Black Panther is the rare, really the only superhero thing I looked forward to ever i'm I, I'm not a superhero person like i i find mm-hmm. the genre i can understand why people like it but it's not my thing i look at it as like, the way people look at musicals where it's like those exist i'm glad they do <laughs> but i don't care see i love musicals i don't love superhero movies and so luke cage has like been on my radar i realize it's very important you know as the folks that 
what like Denzel Washington is the greatest podcast. Mm-hmm. Or, Denzel Washington is the greatest actor of all time. Period. Yes. <laughs> As they would say, it's black people homework. Yes. It is black people homework that I have not yet done. So I know I'm failing on that on that account. And mm-hmm. I plan to watch it over the holiday season and then that just didn't happen. I didn't Ma- really catch Ma- up on it. What anything. is it? Ma- Marishala? I can never say his name. Mahershala. Mahershala Ali is in it. I know. Like all our favorite people. I know. I know. And, and Alfred Witter. <laughs> oh my goodness. Ugh. She's amazing. I know. It's just I haven't. You know, we all have our blind spots. That is one of them. In 2017, that is my New Year's resolution to fix that. And mm-hmm. we will definitely try and talk about it on a, on a future episode yeah so. season two for sure we're gonna fill this hole yes. in black people homework <laughs> <laughs> so thank you again for calling us out and Mia in particular and yeah thanks for listening and welcome to 2017 y'all ooh, ooh, ooh. so in a bit you're going to hear my conversation with an accomplished legend in the film industry ruth e carter a two-time oscar-nominated costume designer who has worked on some of spike lee's best films but to kick off the new year, we've got another rendition of pre-woke watching. Joining me from the DC studio is my colleague AC Valdez. He is a senior producer at Panoply, and you've probably heard him quite a bit on, especially on the B sides of Panoply's podcast, our national conversation about conversations about race. Did I get that right, AC? You got that right. Oh, good. <laughs> okay, it's 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 a mouthful, but I'm happy to say the whole thing. It's one of my Thank favorite you. podcasts. I listen to it. All the time. So, AC, what is your pre-woke watching uh, cultural nugget you have for us today? Are you ready to ruin some childhoods? I mean, that's uh... partially what (laughs) pre-woke is. I'm hoping that a lot of these movies that we talk about are from our childhoods and not from like a year ago. (laughs) But, you know. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) It's, uh, It's the Jungle Book, the cartoon version from 1967. Good choice. I do love that movie, but... We all know that movie has some problems. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The thing is, the music is so catchy. The reason, like, it popped to mind was uh, when when y'all asked me to be on with you. Uh, I was in a car on the way back from West Virginia, and I was playing a playlist of like kind of cartoony songs, just like because we were in kind of a dreary mood. And uh, I want to be like you came on the monkey song. Mm-hmm. It had never really struck me. Until my friend, who was also in the car, pointed it out, just how many subtle racist implications the song really has. Yes. When was the first time you saw it? And what made you love it so much? I mean, I was probably a little kid, so I don't remember exactly the first time I saw it. But I do remember watching it a whole bunch as a kid. And um, I do think the fact that it was so well animated and the colors were wonderful and everybody loves the idea of being friends with animals and... Uh, I loved all of that kind of thing. Um, you know, you want to you want to play like you're a jungle boy sometimes when you're when you're a little nine year old or eight year old or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and the music is so good. I mean, it that's really kind of the thing that breaks my heart about it. Is like I want to be like you is just a fantastically written song. Yeah. Now I'm the king of the swingers, oh the jungle VIP. I've reached the top and had to stop, and that's what's bothering me. I want to be a man, man cub, and stroll right into town. I mean, the song in itself, just to set it up a bit, King Louis, the orangutan played by Louis Prima, he wants to know the secret to fire. And Mowgli, being the only man or human around, it gets kind of wrapped up into this musical number. An ape like me can learn to be human too. 
There's a lot of implications to be made with this song. Uh, the the fact that the lyrics are like, I want to be like you, kind of implies, and in the end, the history of black people specifically being considered close to apes, even though all humans I mean, yeah, are close that, to apes. That doesn't help anything. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that, I think that's the biggest, that's the thing that it's been criticized for the most is is that aspect Well, and then there's it. the notion of like fire and human technology being civilizing and the fact that this takes place. I mean, if you really go back to the Jungle Book, like the Rudyard Kipling mm-hmm. story, I had no idea as a kid just how, what a colonialist he was. And, like, what kind of metaphors he may or may not have been making with these stories. Like, yeah. he's adapting these Indian and I think he did some African folktales just for white audiences. And uh, they really do a good, subtle job of reinforcing the superiority of the colonizing people. For sure. And of course, they don't teach you these things when you're a child. You just no, watch the Disney no. version of them <laughs> and divorce it completely yeah. from that. And you want to hang out with orangutans, don't you? <laughs> I I definitely. <laughs> my, my father was very uh, adamant about me never pretending to be a monkey in play or in general. He mm. was like... We're not going to have that. Apparently someone, when I was like one or two years old, an old white lady came, came up to us when we were in the mall or something. And she said, um, oh, she's so cute, just like a little monkey. And my dad was like, oh, no, uh, no. <laughs> so, <Wow. laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't even think he knew. I don't think he like ever really knew about this song, though. So I I've grew up listening to it all the time and. He probably like didn't pay any attention to it. So, <laughs> but yes, that was my own little tidbit of <laughs> being <laughs> my oh, my association kind of with monkeys. <laughs> yeah, but then you also don't really teach kids like who Rudyard Kipling was and why Walt Disney of all people would have chosen his uh, books to to adapt into cartoons. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's Disney has a long history of. Inserting these things into them, like uh, I recently rewatched Lady and the Tramp, and you know, of course, oh, yeah. I, the, you know, there's the the Siamese twin song <laughs> with the mm-hmm. Siamese cats, which is uh, so many things wrong with that as well. Yeah. It's, it's it's actually, I think it's probably even worse than I want to be like you. It's just blatantly racist. But see, I'm yeah. just gonna take all all of my childhood away from me. <laughs> oh, I have another one. From, <laughs> I have another one from Lady and the Tramp that I actually might save for a future pre woke, but it doesn't have to do with race. It has to do with uh, rape, actually. Oh but anyway, <laughs> but AC keeping it light on represent. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we do here. We crush people's childhoods. <laughs> so AC, do you think that you? Do you do, will you still bump that song even though you know what it's about? Uh, if I do, I'm going to do it guiltily. I have a friend whose band covers that song, and I don't have it within me to say, "Dude, have you ever really thought about that song?" Just because <laughs> it's the the musician in me really really likes it. The uh, social justice part of me really is just. It's one of those things where I'm like torn about whether to. Just let it go. Yeah. And sometimes you just got to let it go. And sometimes you, I'm not, I'm not going to, I'm not going to have a kid and play it for them. I'll say that much. Okay. That's um, fair. And there's one, there's actually one more song within that movie that I think this is the last time I watched it all the way through. My niece was 
maybe four and I had gone out to Illinois to visit my family and uh, my brother put it on and my sister-in-law walks into the room right towards the end. I know what you're talking about. I don't know if you know. (laughs) Yeah, I don't (laughs) know how many people will remember how it ends. But basically, Mowgli is seduced away to the the village by a lovely girl singing this song about uh, traditional gender roles. Father's hunting in the forest. Father's cooking in the home. I must go to fetch the water till the day that I am grown. Till I'm grown. Till I'm grown. I must go to fetch the water till the day that I am grown. It's called My Own Home. And my sister-in-law was like, we are not watching this again. <laughs> this is not happening in my house. And I was like, okay, noted. I know the words to every song on that movie because I've listened to them so many times. So, yes, I know how terrible <laughs> it is. <laughs> are you sure? Are you going to give up this movie? Um, No. I mean, I, 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 I can't because... <laughs> Hey, I know. Berlin, <laughs> Berlin, my producer, is looking at me like outstretched Start hands. Rolling her eyes a little bit. <laughs> Please forgive me. No, I mean, here's the thing is that I, because it, it's, so I'm a big Disney freak, I think, as a lot of listeners may know it by this point. And so I, you know, I grew up listening to them and I grew up with all the soundtracks. And so throughout mm. my entire life, I've had all the soundtracks. I still have them on my computer and on my iPhone. And so whenever I'm doing work or whenever I'm doing anything in the background, like I put it on the background because like at this point I've heard them all, like they just like filter in and out. So if it comes on and it does at some point through the many Disney songs that I have on my playlist, I'm not going to turn Wait, it off. So this is, this is a random playlist situation, but you wouldn't go out of your way to play it. No, but I, I don't go out of the way to play most Disney, like, well, that's not true. Like, I will sometimes go through Lion uh-huh. King. I'll go to Lion King and I'm like, I need some Lion <laughs> King right now. <laughs> but, yeah. And you know what? I, I probably will go back and rewatch the movie because, yeah, there's a lot of racist parts in it. But there's also just some fun parts. I don't know. I'm not, I, don't, I don't feel guilty. Guilty. Should I? Man, I totally, I totally feel guilty. I've well, got, I mean, I feel. <laughs> I, will, I will take your guilt on myself. <laughs> Look, I, I feel, I feel aware. I'm totally aware, and I know that this is screwed up. And if my, like, I don't have children, I don't plan to, but I do have two younger siblings who are seven and uh-huh. eight, and it, that's the kind of thing where, like you said, like I wouldn't play it for my children. If they're watching it, I would probably do a teach. This is a teachy moment, uh, the more you know moment, where I'm going to be like, so just so you know, this, this, and this about this movie. I think you need to have like a parenting expert on and just be like, what is the right age at which to have the, your your movies are kind of messed up conversation with your kids? I mean, my dad made me watch Roots when I was seven, so. Ooh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, thank you so much, AC, for coming on and talking about The Jungle Book. I'm glad you're going to take all the weight of the guilt from from me and put them on your shoulders. (laughs) Thanks for having me, Aisha. Glad to help. (laughs) 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So today, you're going to hear my conversation with an accomplished legend in the film industry, Ruth E. Carter. Now, you may not be immediately familiar with her name, but you've definitely seen her work on the screen. A frequent collaborator of Spike Lee, she's designed costumes for School Days, Do the Right Thing, and Malcolm X, for which she was nominated for her first Oscar, and many other Spike joints. Elsewhere, she's worked on Amistad, her second Oscar nod, What's Love Got to Do With It, my personal favorite, Love and Basketball, Selma, and Joss Whedon's Serenity. I actually recorded this interview last summer while in Miami for the American Black Film Festival, where Ruth was hosting a seminar. And I'm really looking forward to you all hearing more about her experience working in an underappreciated field in the industry. Check it out. So welcome, Ruth. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. And uh, the first thing I'd like to ask you is, when did you first realize becoming a costume designer was what you wanted to do? I believe that becoming a costume designer found me. When I went to college at Hampton University, I auditioned for plays because I liked to do theater, but I was an education major. Mm -hmm. And about halfway through college, I decided to change my major uh, to theater arts. And there was one play that I, I auditioned for and didn't make it. And the professors, who are the directors of the plays, he asked me if I wanted to do the costumes, and I said yes. And after that, I was the resident costume designer at Hampton. Mm -hmm. I mean, every department, the music department, the the resident dance company um, at school, I did costumes for everyone. And I loved it, Mm. you know. Yeah. And then from Hampton, uh, where did you go next? Like, how did you break into Hollywood? After I graduated from Hampton, I was a little nervous because I had created my own curriculum. Mm. And so I felt like I didn't really have enough training. I went back to my hometown, Springfield, Mass., and I uh, did an internship at Stage West. And the internship, it didn't pay you any money, but they housed you. And they gave you like $50 a week for food. And uh, was that you, a lot back then, or was that like? Yeah, that was a million dollars back then <laughs> in 1812. But uh, but uh, you know, it wasn't a lot. I mean, I applied for food stamps, mm-hmm. and um, I made it. I you know, after school, that's the time when you're supposed to experiment with life. And I was doing an internship and being for the first time formally trained in costume design. And did you face any sort of challenges as as a, as a person of color and being a woman in in the industry and trying to get in um I didn't look at challenges for that were uh racial or being a woman or being a girl my biggest challenge was I felt you know becoming a costume designer I wanted to become that so My focus was to get as much literature as I could and find out as much as I could about what it is to be that. And there were 
racism, sexism, you know, along the way. But, you know, when you're in life, you deal with that all the time. When you go to 7-Eleven, you're dealing with something, you know. So I didn't focus on that as being challenging. Hmm. And let's talk a little bit about Spike. Um, You've made so many great movies with him and and uh do the right thing malcolm x as i mentioned earlier you also did i think crooklyn as well and recently chirac yeah um how did you first uh fall in line with with spike and what's it like working with him oh spike uh is very clear uh about what he wants uh, i met spike right after the santa fe opera i went to los angeles and i worked for la the- la theater so- uh, center latc they called it and uh, there were five theaters under one roof i was uh working there not making very much money um spike came uh to see a dance performance Oda Salid's night for dancing and he was brought with my good friend and fellow uh Hampton Tony and Robbie Reed, who's a casting director, uh, she brought him to see this dance performance. And uh, I was there because I was designing for the dance performance. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, they, nobody had any money back then. Everybody was young filmmakers, you know, just doing it. Mm-hmm. And so she introduced me to him. I didn't, she's got to have it, hadn't really, he had, I think, just finished shooting that. Mm. And it hadn't gone to Cannes Film Festival yet. And so he was just kind of talking to me about how to get more film experience. And I was interested in doing opera and theater. So film experience wasn't really something I was immediately interested in so Mm -hmm. I kept thinking you know why does he keep talking to me about film I'm doing theater I'm doing dance performance you know I thought I want to do dance theater of Harlem Mm. and I listened uh, shortly after I went into USC and I signed up to do a student thesis project because that was one of the things that he had mentioned I should do and it was the first film set that I was on and then shortly after that, Spike called me. I tell this story a lot. He used to do that whole she's got to have it thing where you answer the phone and you're like, hello. And he's like, hello, you know, Ruth. And you're like, hello, Ruth. Hello, Ruth. This is Spike. And I said, hey, he's the man of your dreams. Oh, <laughs> very humble, huh? <laughs> um, and I think by dreams he meant here's your opportunity to design a film. And he offered me school days. That was like a, I'm just going to say arbitrarily, say it was like in January. Mm -hmm. And I quit my job and I started, I got the script and I knew how to break down the script from theater. I knew how to get into character development from theater. So I started breaking it down and doing character development and doing sketches. And I, I was living in California in a little studio apartment. Um, I flew back to my brother's studio, who was the artist, and he taught me how to uh, make a budget for this uh, for the script. And uh, my brother was also working at IBM, and he was like doing all of their brochures and stuff. And he let me sit at his big, huge IBM computer <laughs> and do my budget. And as well as that computer was right next to this big drawing table. And I'd sit there at his drawing table and I drew every character 
in school days. Are you black? Hey, look, man, don't ever question the fact whether I'm black. In fact, I was going to ask your country, Bama ass, why you got them drip, drip chemicals in your head. Right, <laughs> goddammit. And then come out in public with a shower cap on your head. And that would maybe brought me up to spring, maybe March. And Spike invited me to Brooklyn to go to his house. Um, I was going to give him a presentation of what I had done, what I had drawn. Mm. And so I, uh, my brother drove me to Boston Airport. I flew into LaGuardia, and I called Spike, and I said, hey, Spike, I'm here. And he was like, okay, get on the A train and <laughs> change to the two and get on the three, get off at Washington Place, you know. So I did. I had my brother's big portfolio. I remember going through the turnstile in the portfolio case, just getting all like wrapped up in it because it was oh, so big. No. Yeah. But I got to Spike's house and um, I spread out, you know, 50 or so uh, drawings. And my brother, who had been in the, the uh, corporate world of art, he said, have him sign in the corner everyone that he approves. So Spike is initialed in, in the corner. But, you know, going back to Spike, if you work with him, you know that he wants you to bring your artistic contribution to his film. He wants to hear it. He wants to see it. And he trusts that what you do is a passion. So he wants you to bring that passion to, to the project. Is there a way when he's looking at your spreads, is there a certain way he's like... I don't know if I'm feeling that or... No, he doesn't say, I don't know. He says, that needs to be this. Mm -hmm. No, that needs to be that. Well, that's very good that it's straightforward because you know. It's very straightforward. Yeah. It's very straightforward. No, we don't want any sweaters. So, you know, we'd yeah. rather have... You do. Uh, this is how I went, and he'll do a little drawing and his handwriting. He'll say, we need a T-shirt that says Jigaboo, just <laughs> like this. Mm -hmm. So you're very clear about where you're going. You know, I want all the, you know, I want shorts for do the right thing. I want every, it to be, it's the hottest day of the summer. Women are walking around in bras. Men are walking around in bike shorts. Mm -hmm. It's colorful, but it's hot. Bouncing off of the do the right thing, like that film feels to me like a movie in which it looks like, and I think this is a credit to the, the costume design, it looks like everyone just brought what they were wearing that day to the set. Did you get input from the people who were playing these parts because you know it's contemporary especially i would love for you to talk a little bit about the outfits that rosie wears well, i can't be staying long anyhow oh. what we have to do to nasty hold up wait a minute first of all it is too hot all right and if you think i'm gonna let you get some put your clothes on and leave here and i'll see you a black ass for another week you must be bugging i see you tomorrow yeah right and my name is boo boo the fool so no nasty, huh? Well, you know, it's funny. When we look at it now, it looks like, hey, it's everyday wear what people wear. But we were in Bed-Stuy, mm -hmm. and it was very much heightened realism. Yeah. We were wearing a lot of Nikes. We were wearing a lot of primary colors. It was very colorful. I, you know... Every person who could wear a midriff was wearing one. Um, there were people who were rooted in the community, like Ruby D playing mother sister, and uh, Ozzie Davis playing the mayor. Mm -hmm. um, but then we had Roger Smith walking around as Smiley with the red shirt buttoned up to the top, and right. 
you know, he had his Malcolm and Martin picture. Um, you had the the kids, you know, that were coming through. It was Martin Lawrence at the time. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, they had on, I dressed everyone because it was one of the hottest days, singular, of the summer. So there was continuity. And they wore that one outfit for the whole time we were shooting. So I had multiples on most of them Mm. so people could have a fresh pair of shorts. So as much as it would have been easier, I guess, if people were to just come dressed and just be Brooklyn, it was kind of a stylized or a pop culture version of Brooklyn. To me, when I stood on that set and I looked past our set into Bed-Stuy, I saw another thing. Yeah. Well, in terms of just color, because yes. that, that's a huge part if you're talking about the heightened realism of, of the film. There's just so many pops of color. How do you navigate it? Because it's obviously not just the design. You also have to consider what the like what it's going to look like on screen. Right. The palette deemed itself mm. uh, based on each individual character. Uh, what colors were going to work on each person and what could be a bright color on that person that would uh, would portray them in their in a in in their light like Rosie wore a yellow midriff top with a black bow in the middle you know mm-hmm. and you know, the color was chosen because it was a bright color that she could wear um, Joie wears a green shirt when the garbage can is thrown through the window you see her right. sitting on the curb we're at night and we needed the colors to be bright when the men are sitting there in front of the bright red wall and the three mm-hmm. three guys are sitting there one has on baby blue and one has on brown I chose the color that were going to suit the scene. I didn't necessarily initially come up with a palette. I just took each individual person on a case-by-case basis knowing that we wanted it to be colorful. Mm. While Do the Right Thing was very contemporary, you've worked, I think, more so or a lot within period pieces and, and things that are set in the past. Sure. What are the different challenges? Like, do you find one more challenging than the other? I approach them both kind of the same. I love to do the research. Mm-hmm. I love to, um, you know, be inspired by art, art history. You know, you can look at a, a, an art painting and you can get the mood of it and transfer it to something contemporary. I see it all the time. Mm. I see it in advertising all the time. So I know that there's period research, even in modern interpretations. Mm. So um, for, for modern things, like when I do Being Mary Jane, I just did a movie called Keeping Up with the Joneses, I go online, I look at what the fashion is for the time, I I go, there's a few sites that I love that I go to and I see, I'm inspired. Um, do you do like, do you do Pinterest or anything like that? Or? I love Pinterest, yeah. I do Pinterest, I do Tumblr, and I come up with a, a, a lot of directions for each character because I'm always looking for not necessarily just the fashion. I'm looking for the why. Why is this person wearing this this way? What can I do to make the colors really uh, uh, dynamic? Mm. What can I do to make this pe- person um, interesting? So with period, it's actually the same thing um, because anybody could dress someone in period clothes, but you'd look like you were at some theme park. 
Right. So instead, you really want to make sure you have a direction and a palette for that character. And that happens with a lot of uh, research. Like in Roots, I have um, Fiddler, who's played by um, Forrest Whitaker. Mm -hmm. And, you know, men back in that time, they shaved their head before they put the wigs on. So there's a point in the story where he removes the wig, and um, I gave him after that point in the story this cap that was very popular during that time. It had been worn by gentry when they weren't wearing their wigs. And so I I made a few for him and aged them down as if he was given a hand-me-down mm-hmm. that he'd wear on his head. So there's, like, things that you should know about people and about the time and about how people live that unless you're doing the research, you're just looking blindly at pictures. How do, how do you find those pieces as, as a de- designer? Obviously, I think you have more resources than a lot of people might have, but w- is it a lot of, like museums looking to different collectors things like that yeah i go to the collectors i know some amazing collectors i can't do the thrift store thing i'm making Mm. it official (laughs) i love thrift stores but you know they're all over the place you know they're really for the treasure hunter and i usually don't have enough time i have to go to collectors that know the vintage that know what they have Mm -hmm. i have a conversation with them before i go in and i go right to you know their collection of that time hmm. yeah thrift, thrift store shopping is not for the the lazy Pain of heart, no. <laughs> yeah yeah I, I myself can't do it it's just it's too much I can't not ask you about serenity because I feel like there's so many huge Josh Whedon fans who love 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 serenity yeah so how did you sort of take what was in the show Firefly like the Chinese influences um, and also the Old West influences and how did you adapt those for serenity yeah i looked at the whole series i binge binge watched the whole series and i got the idea of what they were doing and with the script because we were doing it as a feature it was a a matter of taking that concept which was done for television and uh kind of upgrading it or or expounding upon it Mm -hmm. um for a bigger bigger venue and so that means you want to see a little bit more you want to see more detail and it is, it's a little bit more creative. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have time to do that. So uh, for River, I made all of her dresses. They had to have a certain flow and a, for a certain color. All of her fabrics were dyed. All of the characters had some additional thing that was done. Like they, I remember they didn't want to have traditional buttons or things that you would think of of this time that we were presently in Mm -hmm. so instead of buttons I used magnets and there were things like that that I did I remember making boots just everything had to be original but still uh, I had to stay within the theme of what Firefly was about for for its fan base Mm -hmm. and keep it western but make it futuristic and have the Asian influence in there. Right. Like the the Mal character, I think with like, he had like the suspenders that suspenders. were sort of futuristic. Yeah. But then also the Old West. Yes. He yeah. had those suspenders. I remember using something different to adjust them. Mostly he had magnets, mm-hmm. a lot of magnets in his uh, in his costume, which was hilarious on some days. And I mean, we didn't, I, f- I feel like... S- 
Firefly was very much his very passion project. Yes. How involved was he in Josh? Yeah. Oh my God. Josh Whedon was at every fitting. Hmm. And he's so hilarious. His father was a writer on the Dick Van Dyke show. Mm -hmm. So he had comedy in his household and he's really funny. And, you know, some designers don't like to have the director in the room because, you know, they really need to connect with the actors and have that time. Um, But it was, he made it really easy, but he was at every fitting. He was like, he said, if he wasn't a director, he probably would have been a fashion designer. (laughs) (laughs) He's really funny. That's great. And was he sort of like Spike in that, like, if he didn't like something, he would say? Well, by the time we got to set, he knew everything. Mm. So I didn't have that experience. He was very clear, though. Mm -hmm. He was very clear about what he wanted, like Spike, because these characters already had a life. Mm -hmm. So he was actually helping me, you know, understand, like, I guess the psychology behind each character and that's part of dressing them you know knowing their mind and knowing what their choices would be it's sort of like I did that with Malcolm X Um, I went to the Department of Corrections after a long letter writing campaign to them and asked if I could see his uh, file that they had on him when he was incarcerated and at long last I was in Boston in a cubicle like reading letters that he had written and looking at his booking file Mm -hmm. so it just helps understanding the person when you're dressing them. Hmm. Who was your favorite person? To, like, who was your favorite character to dress? There's so many. There's so many. I mean, I could say one, and then in five minutes it hmm. would be someone else. But I love dressing uh, Lawrence Fishburne as Ike Turner. Oh yeah, and that was fun. And what's it? love got to do with it? I love dressing Eddie Murphy. I mean, he's fun. He walks right in his clothes. He's funny. Mm. Uh, The women that I've dressed, like Angela Bassett and so many different types of movies. I did Stella, How Stella Got Her Groove Back, which I totally related to as a woman, Mm. a career woman. What's your name, young man? My name is Winston. Winston Shakespeare. (laughs) And yours, young lady? My name's Stella Winston. Mm Mm-hmm. See, I gave you two names. You only gave me one. Well, the one I gave you was real, Mr. Shakespeare. You didn't know Shakespeare was really black. Yeah, man. Socrates, too. So it was fun to do her as that, and it was fun to do her as Tina Turner. And then most recently, Carmine Jogo. I mean, dressing her as Coretta Scott King mm. and dressing her in Sparkle mm. was awesome. Like I said, I can say one's my favorite, and then I'm just yeah. like, oh, Tika, <laughs> Tika Sumter, loved her. Yeah. You know, it goes on and on. I find something to love in all of it. Yeah. You mentioned the Roots remake a little while ago, and I know... Um, one of the things that LeVar Burton talked about a lot in the promotion for the show was that they wanted to make Roots a more, this version of Roots, a more historically accurate uh, depiction of what slavery was like and what Africa was like at that time. Did you look at all to the original Roots for costume inspiration? And like, what kind of research went into having it be more historically accurate? Well, first, I want to say I didn't. I I saw the original Roots when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. It impacted me uh, greatly, as it did many Americans, and not only Americans, people around the world. And I didn't want to mess with that because I knew that there was a whole community of people out there that were saying, "Why? Why do Roots?" And when I was first asked to do it, I asked that question myself. Mm-hmm. So I didn't need to see it again. 
I felt like we were doing a a new Roots, a Roots reboot for a new generation, a new eye, a new, more sophisticated audience. So I decided that if there is going to be an analogy to the old Roots, then it was just going to happen organically. I wanted to give the actors the respect of coming into my fitting room with new ideas, and I hadn't painted a, you know, picture in my mind that was indelible because it's based on something else. Mm-hmm. I wanted them to have the, you know, freedom and the open open canvas to create with me what their version of Chicken George was going to be, what their version of Kizzy was going to be. And I felt like that would have been a new, fresh approach. Um, with the backdrop being slavery, I wanted it to look different than we have already seen. We just saw 12 Years a Slave. We just saw Django. How can I make my roots, this reboot from an old story, have an impact on people. It's, it wasn't interesting to me to redo a look that's already been done. So one of the things I felt was lacking was color, that every time I saw a slave movie, it was beige. And I read a lot uh, because the, the, the photographs um, don't go back far enough. So right. you have to read. And one of the things was indigo, Indigo was harvested in Africa. Indigo was harvested in uh, Virginia. So indigo, blue, was something that I, was, I read was something that even uh, warded off insects like mosquitoes. Hmm. If you dyed your shirt in the indigo, it, the mosquitoes would you know, be uh, deflected from you. And so that told me that there was blue in the clothes, Um, And once I got the permission in my mind to use blue, I decided I would use other vegetable dyes since they had, you know, the awareness of dyeing the fabrics. And I brought in a very salmon-y pink and other colors to the background of what everyone wore. And even with the characters themselves, the main characters like Kunta Kente, I wanted to show the, uh, a good relationship uh, between him and his uh, daughter, him and his wife, by the color. You know, you react to color when you see it on, on film. You react when the colors are pleasing together. Right. That's, that's really interesting that you say that, because now that I think about it, you're right. Like, I feel like that time period we often get, at least for um, slave, if we're talking about slaves, um, it's always very like muted, yeah. beige. Although I will say, I'm I'm thinking now. I remember having. I don't know if you're familiar with the American Girl dolls. Yes. But like Addie, I had an Addie doll when I was a kid, and she had like this pink, like uh, like calico dress. I yeah, think. Um, calico. Yeah, and and I think that's the only instance of a a slave having a dress that looked that like had that. a color. Yeah, that had a color. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you. Um, at least on your IMDb page, it says that you are 
designing the costume for the Black Panther, the Marvel superhero Does it movie. say that on my IMDb page? I was trying to keep that low-key oh, okay. down low. Uh-oh. <laughs> wow, uh, it's on IMDb already. It is. Yeah, yeah. oh should we? No, it's okay. Okay, all right. Well. Um, but don't ask me too much. Okay. Well, my only real question, I guess, did you design the Black Panther costume in particular, and did you design the one that we see in Captain America? No, that's not designed by Marvel. Okay. Marvel has... Black Panther down. Oh, so they're all over that. They're then. all over that. They okay. they are the creator of the Black Panther, but there's right. a lot around his story. Mm-hmm. And now that we're actually going to show his story, we're also going to see him in other way uh, outside of that costume. Okay, so you'll be you will be designing Chadwick Boseman's outfits, just not that. That's no, just, that's already done. That's intellectual yeah. property. Yeah, Marvel. exactly. Okay. Got it. <laughs> <laughs> and that's super technical. Those suits, man. I yeah. mean, really super technical. Yeah. I mean, that's a that's a huge... Obviously, you've done a lot of big films, but Marvel feels like a whole different sort of Yeah, it's another ball game. And yeah. it's also the same ball game because they chose me. And so I feel like I'm going to bring, you know, everything that I've always relied on to the table and mm-hmm. just step it up. Yeah. Have you started working with Ryan at all? I'm working right now in Buffalo, New York with Chadwick on Mm -hmm. Thurgood Marshall's story. Oh, okay. Yeah, and it's called Marshall, and Reggie Hudlin is the director, and Kate Hudson is uh, in it as well, Mm -hmm. Josh Gad. Mm -hmm. And we are in our last uh, eight days of filming. It's an incredible story, incredible-looking movie. It's set in 1940. Mm. So I'd like to know, is there any sort of costume that you've designed and you have it all in your head and then you see it like in in the dailies or while it's you know still in production and then you think wait maybe that's not what I wanted well yes that's gonna happen anytime anytime it's a creative thing Mm -hmm. you're never done with it I usually need other people to say it's okay Mm -hmm. relax it looks great that people are saying, my friends are saying that to me all the time. Mm-hmm. Like, they don't want to go with me to see one of my movies for the first time. They <laughs> they will not enjoy themselves because I'm just, like, sighing, rolling my eyes, hiding under the seat. It's really hard to see your work after, you know, you've given it. It's like you're birthing a baby. You give you gave it so much, and now it's here, and you go, oh, I should have, you know, I should have done something a little bit different there. Mm-hmm. It takes me, um, sometimes it takes me like a couple years to, of not thinking about the film and seeing it like on Netflix and going, you know, this is really good. Yeah. I mean, you sound sort of, that sounds not too different from, from actors who say they can't watch themselves on, yeah. on screen. It's like, yeah. I can it's hard. understand. Yeah. Yeah. Is there any, are there any up-and-coming or maybe unsung uh, costume designers who you think are doing really great work right now? Oh, yeah. I have a lot of protégés. There's Rita McGee. She did the first season of Empire. She just finished doing the uh, story about New Edition. Oh, yeah. Um, I also have uh, Frank Fleming, who uh, worked with me as an intern and then as a costumer, and he's now the designer for Power, mm. and he did Monsters Ball. 
there is uh, Janelle. Um, Janelle. Janelle, what's your last name, Janelle? I forgot <laughs> Janelle's last name for a second. But anyway. She'll forgive you. Yeah, <laughs> but she's amazing. And anytime I have a project that I can't do, I usually give it to her because I trust her. She has passion. She has an eye. She has mm-hmm. taste. So I, you know, uh, I'm proud of the people that have worked with me and have moved on to do, uh, to have a career. There's Sandra Hernandez, who's Mm. in New York, and she was my intern. She wanted to be a script supervisor, and she came into the department. So not only the people that work for me, but, you know, we have a network out there that of, there's not very many African-American costume designers, so we kind of all know each other. And, uh, you know, Gersha Phillips did Miles Davis. Mm. So, I, you know, we're colleagues. Great. Do you mm-hmm. all hang out sometimes? Or? When we see each other. Yeah. But we're like ships passing in the night most of the time. Because you're working. Because we're working. And that's a good thing. Yeah. Yes. Awesome. Well, thank you so much you're for welcome. dropping by and looking forward to seeing Black Panther and, and Marshall and everything else you do. Thank you for having me. That's all for today. Shout out to AC for coming on the show today and ruining childhood dreams for everyone everywhere. And thanks to Ruth for sitting down with us and dishing on her illustrious career. You can find links to the things we touched on in the show notes. And as always, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Megaphone, Stitcher, or any other place you find your podcasts. Please continue to tell your friends, your family, all your loved ones about us and rate us on iTunes if you haven't. We really appreciate your support. Represent is produced by the lovely, awesome Verilyn Williams. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Steve Lichtai. Andy Bowers is chief content officer of Panoply. Email us at represent at slate.com, and you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Slate Represent. That music you're hearing is performed by the sweet San Francisco funk soul band Midtown Social. And once again, happy freaking New Year, y'all. If you've listened to this, it means you survived 2016. And even if things get worse before they get better, at least we all won't be so caught off guard like we were last year. So there's that. Cheers and until next time.